0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The socialist activist E.T. Kingsley occupies an odd place in the history of labor and the left. Often mentioned due to his prolific life of speaking, writing, traveling, and organizing, he has still generally remained wrapped in obscurity, leaving little in the way of a paper trail for us to understand who he actually was. Fortunately, Benjamin Isaac and Ravi Mahatra have been working to correct this. Following up their co-authored biography of him, which we covered previously, they have now put out an anthology of writings and speeches of Kingsley from the late 19th and early 20th century. While the entries tend to be short, their polemical nature and reflection on current events open up a window, to the labor struggles of the Pacific Northwest a century ago, allowing us to see a new angle on and perhaps develop a new appreciation of our history. Ravi Malhotra is a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. Benjamin Isett is a historian, author, and legal scholar in British Columbia. Ravi Malhotra, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thank you
0: so much for having me back.
1: Yeah, so I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes, so could you maybe just tell listeners a quick uh, word about who you are, what your work and research tends to focus on, and maybe say a thing or two about your co-editor today, Ben Isit, and maybe a bit about how you two met or first encountered each other.
0: All right, try to unpack that. I'm Ravi Mohatra. I'm a professor who teaches labor law and human rights at the University of Ottawa, and Ben Isaac's an independent scholar, city councillor for many years in Victoria, British Columbia, and also uh, he is, uh, you know, a lawyer that practices law now, So, uh, as well as a historian. So uh, I bring to this project, uh, and there were a total of three books on E.T. Kingsley uh, in different ways, and uh, Ben brings the historical aspect. So we started off with an anthology, Disabling Barriers, that collected work around disability history. Then we wrote the actual biography of E.T. Kingsley called Able to Lead, uh, and you kindly featured me on, on a different episode. And then we wanted to collect speeches. And I give full credit to Ben. He came up with this idea. He wasn't able to be here today, but we collected the speeches and writings of Kingsley uh, And we collected them in a book that just came out from Athabasca University Press, but anyone can read it for free online on the Athabasca University Press website. Uh, And it's called Class Warrior, The Selected Works of E.T. Kingsley. And Ben made the point, it was literally a surprise to me, my idea originally was to have some of the writings, a small fragment, as an appendix to the biography. And then Ben said, no, we could have a separate book, so we did.
1: Yeah. So one thing you noted in our last conversation um, that I want to ask is uh, what sort of paper trail did Kingsley leave? Because you noted in our last conversation that he didn't leave like as rich of a correspondence as many figures do. He didn't leave a lot of extensive personal writings. His main paper trail seems to have been kind of shorter, polemical uh, uh, publications in various left journals. He wrote a couple somewhat lengthier pamphlets. Um, could you maybe kind of give us a sense of like what did he leave behind in terms of writing that you're drawing on for this anthology? Like
0: it's it's a very interesting question because in terms of correspondence there's almost none. I mean to the extent that we could find it, there's very very little correspondence. There's a little bit with one politician in British Columbia and a lot of that is very utilitarian. It's sort of do this, go that. It's not It's not very deep philosophically, even though we know Kingsley was a deep thinker. And so we had to trace uh, content from newspaper accounts and from the editor, uh, his editorial role as the editor of uh, the Western Clarion, which was the organ of the organization he led in British Columbia. And of course, he was originally an American. And, uh, you know, as I discussed in an earlier interview, you know, he crosses the border. He ran for uh, both the House of Representatives and the Canadian House of Commons. He never wins, but he was also an activist uh, in uh, California. But in Class of Warrior, we mostly overwhelmingly connect his Canadian period, simply because by the time he shows up in British Columbia, his nickname is the old man. He's he's a leader. He's not that old, frankly, because he's in his 40s, but... He's, at that point, a lot of his writings are available. There's relatively little from his American period, although he does give speeches. And he, he was invited by socialists in Nanaimo, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, to come because of his reputation in the Pacific Northwest of California. He was well-known as a soapbox speaker. And so if you, he was involved in the Delaneist organization, Daniel Delain's Uh, Socialist organization, which many Americans today don't know, but in the 1890s, before the era of Eugene Debs, the Lion was the largest, uh, he led the largest radical organization in the United States. And so, you know, uh, Kingsley was very active and he did have speeches there. And Class Warrior, we collect some of those, uh, but it's primarily his uh, Canadian articles and speeches. There's a couple that were reprinted in the Australian press. Uh, you know, and we were fascinated by the fact that somehow Australian radicals picked up on this. And so uh, in his day, Kingsley, uh, at the peak of his fame, was very well known. And so I'm very proud, along with Ben, to have a collection of his writings. Uh, you know, and I, I think that both his articles and his speeches uh, give you a flavor, a window into the world, a world that no longer exists. it's it's a world of the early 20th century. And in some cases, uh, you know, even earlier.
1: Yeah. Let's pick up uh, what you were just talking about, the world Kingsley inhabited. Um, He was working, uh, most of his political work was done first in California, then he kind of traveled up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, One question that might be worth addressing is what socialism meant at the time to people working kind of under that umbrella, because it's meant so many different things to different people. Um, When we say Kingsley was a socialist, or we could even say a Marxist activist or politician, you know, what would that kind of entail that might maybe kind of be different from what it is often meant today?
0: Such a good question. I mean, uh, Kingsley uh, has a story. It may be an apocryphal story. It's hard to verify these things. But the story is that when he had his accident as a brakeman, and I talked about this in the earlier interview, he uh, becomes a double amputee, that he read Marx while convalescing uh, in a Missoula, uh, Montana, uh, railway hospital. There were so many injuries at the time. Railways operated hospitals. Is the story true? Well, quite honestly, you know, it seems far-fetched. Simply if you look at the when translations of Marx were available, leaving aside how it got to Montana uh, in 1890, which was, I think, just recently admitted as a state. It wasn't even a state, I think, until uh, the 1880s. So you're talking, it seems like there might have been a little bit of pro- promotion on the part of Kingsley that the story is apocryphal rather than strictly accurate. But Kingsley had a very orthodox version of socialism, and we talk about it in this book. Class warrior, but also, or in the, I mean, it comes out in the collection. Of course, Ben and I do have an intro that where we describe this, uh, as does a forward by the wonderful Canadian historian uh, Brian Palmer, who generously contributed. But what I would say to answer your question, Stephen, is that it's it's an impossibleist version, which means reforms, uh, sops to the system are impossible, and that's a very different version from say uh, many people in. Uh, the American Socialist Party, the Debs-led, that was much more about working within the system. And after the First World War, and Kingsley lives until 1929, that becomes social democracy. And it's a little bit ambiguous what Kingsley feels about the rapid changes in the First World War, the Great War, as it was known then, and the Russian Revolution. But it seems clear that he always maintained a radical position, even though he joined a formation at the end of the First World War in British Columbia, the Federated Labour Party, that went off after Kingsley's death in a more social democratic direction. Kingsley, as a very old man, runs for office in, uh, for parliament in Canada in 1926, one last time. And I think that if you read the book, you read the writings and read the speeches, you'll see that his vision of socialism is, is very orthodox and that he's, he's very much focused on class politics, to the point that, you know, there's positions that nobody in the modern world would defend today. So he's not particularly a supporter of women's suffrage. He sees that as a distraction from the class struggle. It's a very unblemished, uh, uncompromising version of socialism. And I think he imported a lot of what he learned from Delane. Even though he breaks with Delane, I think he imports a lot of that into his politics uh, in uh, British Columbia. So one, one of their slogans was no compromise, no political trading. Uh, that's one of the slogans of his party, uh, of which he was a central leader. I think that gives you a, a sense of how he thinks.
1: Yeah, to tease this out a little bit, um, you mentioned impossibilism, uh, as opposed to like a more reformist approach to kind of class struggle and revolution. Um, And one question uh, I think you bring up in your introduction, or maybe Brian brought it up in his foreword, was the question of unions. So Kingsley would often speak somewhat critically of unions and kind of antagonistically. uh, But you and I say argue that uh, a more nuanced kind of approach to uh, both his words as well as his practice, um, you know, should push us away from thinking that this is uh, maybe kind of an ultra leftist or uh, more sectarian approach. And instead that, you know, this is maybe uh, part of his kind of rhetorical style. Um, he was often known to uh, be somewhat kind of witty. He would use humor, sarcasm. Um, you know, could you maybe speak to, uh, you know, his style uh, and how that might kind of, if you only read the writings without knowing about his background and his context, you might kind of get the wrong impression. Could you speak to that?
0: Oh, sure. So yeah, he had a, He had a very keen wit, you know, and uh, I can't do justice to it. The readers will have to read the book to give you a, a full sense of the flavor. But I think what you said is accurate. I don't think the idea here is that we have someone who's extremely dogmatic. It's irrelevant. And yet we wrote three books that in various ways deal with it. I think it's more that the practice of the organization was actually nuanced. It was creative at times. I can give you a specific illustration. Uh, You know, this shows, I think, dynamism and flexibility. So like in the United States, uh, when he was in California, both California and British Columbia had a lot of repression of free speech. A lot of Americans would find that surprising, peaceful free speech. The First Amendment jurisprudence doesn't take off until many decades later. It's a different era. And so although a lot of historians associate that with anarchists, in fact, Kingsley led uh, his organization in California, led one of the first free speech fights, and almost no historians that we could find, with very, very few exceptions, really talk about this in the 1890s. And this continues when he comes to British Columbia, and he imports these ideas. So when I, to answer your question, the example of flexibility, sort of the nuance, is when they were repressing free speech in British Columbia, the municipal ordinance would prohibit uh, political demonstrations on the streets, but it was biased. If you were uh, promoting the ideas of Christianity or Jesus Christ through the Salvation Army, the government would allow religious figures, uh, street preaching, but they were suppressing socialists. So people in the Socialist Party of Canada said they would go into this body of water called English Bay off Vancouver, and they would sell their radical newspaper from the, the raft in the bay because it's technically it's not violating the municipal ordinance uh the uh, the municipal bylaw I should say you know so uh, I thought that's an example that the I think the rhetorical style is simply Kingsley's way of speaking he used humor to get across his point you know and uh, the we start off our our uh, our book in uh, able to lead with an anecdote you know about uh, a time when he's debating other people and uh, he tells a story of uh, how the other speaker made fun of Kingsley's baldness. He's a bald man, and Kingsley says, well, you know, this uh, uh, this other man says, uh, I'm bald, and I'm paraphrasing here. He expresses it much more colorfully. He says, every, you can see my baldness every time I take off my hat. My opponent, his kind of baldness, you see every time he opens his mouth. So, you know, and uh, so he had this very dramatic wit. He had this very polemical speaking style. And I think it was sort of, uh, he felt that workers needed to be uh, outraged and, you know, he needed to raise consciousness. And that's why I think he spoke in this dramatic style. And it's true, though, the point you're making about humor, this is an era before television and radio. So a lot of it, I think, doesn't communicate the same way in print. They're actually, a lot of the polemics were meant to be funny to get the audience going. And you'll see the newspaper coverage is very different because newspapers were actually written in a very different way. There's a lot of verbatim coverage of meetings, and that's because there's no radio coverage, there's no TV coverage, so newspaper accounts were extremely detailed. And so you'll see in newspapers, and this is one of the ways we were able to prepare this book, is the fact that newspapers will actually reproduce political speeches at meetings in full. Uh, And that's something that just isn't done today. But in those days, it was.
1: Yeah, I think we can just pick that up as well. So you've got um, a whole section of speeches of Kingsley, but in many cases, you don't even have the speech, you have like some newspaper reporters kind of summary of it, which is just a completely different way of kind of experiencing politics. You know, now everything is up on YouTube. It doesn't, you don't even need that expensive of a setup to kind of record yourself. Um, But a lot of people were encountering Kingsley, you know, via kind of secondary information summaries of uh, his, um, Speeches and ideas. I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe kind of speak a bit to how his ideas were being spread around and encountered by a lot of people. Um, it was maybe a lot more kind of secondhand word of mouth along the grapevine, that sort of thing. Um, but in spite of that, you make it pretty clear that his ideas went pretty far. They went as far as Australia. He was invited all over to give speeches. You know, could you maybe speak to that dynamic a bit?
0: the, the how his ideas were disseminated so widely. Yeah, yeah. So. I think part of it is that he was simply constantly active. And so people people communicated in a way that was different from today. Obviously, email is instantaneous. Kingsley doesn't have email. You know, he, he communicates through correspondence. But despite being a double amputee, and in my earlier interview, you know, we talked all about his disablement, he also goes on cross-Canada trips, and both in California and in his Canadian period. And the last 27 years of his life, and he was active un- until almost the, until maybe the last couple of years of his life, until he was a very old man. He is constantly giving speeches, uh, you know, and uh, he does do these cross-Canada tours. Uh, you know, and uh, imagine, uh, you know, today, 2023, uh, going from Wisconsin to California. That's a long flight. People are exhausted. They have to connect flights. Imagine going by train in 1904 in, or 1907 across Canada. That's a, that's a big journey. But uh, Kingsley did that, uh, and he would report back. So I think the newspaper of the organization, the Western Clarion, played a role that was different today. Radical newspapers exist today, but they're not used in the same way. In, in those days, you know, people would read the papers. Uh, readers would write in letters to the editor, and they, they would dispute in the uh, letters column you know, this sort of thing. And newspapers would definitely feature speeches. And I think, you know, we did talk about this, but I think, uh, Ben and I, but I think it's reasonable to rely on these accounts simply because of the way journalism worked in this era. And so you've got, you know, uh, very uh, detailed information. And the fact of the matter is, despite the technological barriers, people were just adapted to it. So one of the things... Uh, that as a legal scholar uh, interests me the most, although you know, I'm interested in all of it, had to do with the uh, arrest of the American trade union leaders uh, that were uh, leaders of uh, the uh, IWW, I believe, the big, big Bill Haywood and some of his others. Uh, that became a Canadian issue, you know. despite all this. That was widely discussed when uh, Big Bill Haywood was arrested and uh, to this day Some of your readers may have read the uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author who wrote Big Trouble. I think that's the name of the book. That's the thousand-page discussion of this episode where Haywood is arrested. That was big news in the labor movement around the world. And, uh, you know, you have Kingsley commenting on issues in Russia. You have Kingsley commenting on international issues. Uh, And so I think that people did communicate. They wrote letters. They traveled by train. And
1: and they kept constant touch. Yeah. um, Picking up the remark you made about Haywood, you argue that um, in your introduction, that this, among other things, uh, Kingsley responded to with various writings, um, and that they're really important historically because uh, you can see in these moments the nature of the state starting to change and particularly in terms of uh, security. So we talked a bit about this in our last conversation, the state started to kind of consider monitoring its own citizens for subversive activity as a crucial part of its own uh, activities and responsibilities. Um, That uh, is kind of a change that's happening in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that often comes down In the hardest terms, on like labor organizers and union organizers, like Kingsley, Um, could you maybe speak to that um, and what some of reading some of Kingsley's writings helps us see, you know, in terms of that transition,
0: the transition of the security state. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think uh, it's a very important point you make in my mind, and uh, perhaps Ben might have a different view. I bring the legal expertise; Ben's a historian, but. I believe that it's really only after the outbreak of the Great War. Uh, And don't forget that, uh, unlike the United States, the Wilson administration, uh, unlike the Wilson administration, Canada has no independent foreign policy at this time. London decides Canada's foreign policy. Uh, It's a dominion. Canada does not have an independent foreign policy until after Kingsley's death. So 1914, Canada's automatically at war. And so there's a lot of suspicion of radicals uh, although Kingsley himself uh, was actually took an ambiguous position on the whole business of World War one and he, he breaks with the Socialist Party of Canada after World War one nonetheless from the state's point of view they don't care about stuff like that they see Kingsley as a dangerous radical and that's not my opinion that's what the we found the intelligence documents that that say uh, this in the most colorful language impos- uh, possible. You know, they they say that he, he Kingsley is an out-and-out out red Bolshevik uh, and one of the most dangerous men in Canada. Th- those aren't things that I'm embellishing. Those are direct quotes from the uh, intelligence documents. So I think it was the for in my mind. I think sure there was always some security, but I think in the hinterland, and this would be true not just in British Columbia but also the American West Coast. Uh, and I think this is more confusing to Americans, just because, because California's population has exploded. You have to think about how uh, pre-earthquake San Francisco, which is where Kingsley lived in the 1890s, there was a different place. So I think there was always some security state, but it's really with the rise of the Great War, World War I, that you see this, and military intelligence starts looking at, at people who are... Uh, opposed to the war. And despite Kingsley's own personal position, he's closely affiliated, and the majority are vehemently anti-war. This is not a position that endears them to the Canadian state, nor does it uh, for anti-war radicals in the United States. And so you have, in both countries, suppression, particularly once Wilson uh, decides to go to war. And so at the end of World War I, you've got uh, repression of reds, in both countries where, you know, and there's the mass labor radicalization and the Socialist Party of Canada plays a role in that. And the famous Winnipeg general strike, uh, you know, which is a a big, now it's not near uh, British Columbia, but nonetheless, the intellectual ideas I think go there. And I would simply say that I think the state, uh, you know, uh, increased over time and, uh, you know, but this did not stop somebody from like Kingsley, from continuing to write, and when events like the Winnipeg General Strike and the Russian Revolution happened, he kept writing. He didn't, as as an independent person, no longer actively in the Socialist Party, but as a radical, he continues to write, continues to speak.
1: Yeah, along these lines as well, and other. An important event you highlight in Kingsley's life and times is uh, the Komagata Maru incident, um, one involving uh, immigrant laborers, um, which, again, kind of reflects uh, the changing nature of the state's uh, capacity to monitor borders, um, uh, bring in and transport or refuse pe- uh, people's entrance, uh, depending on um various things. I'm wondering if you, and Kingsley did write in response to this event, I'm wondering if you could tell us about his response, but also what we can kind of see in retrospect this event kind of embodied in terms of the changing nature of the state and capital and borders.
0: Oh, that's a really good question. So yeah, at page 200 of our book, we reproduce a speech by Kingsley on the treatment of Sikh passengers. Sikhism is a religion, uh, you know, and uh, they were passengers on this boat that was turned back because, uh, you know, these passengers uh, and some, some of them, from what I understand, some of them were Hindu or Hindu. Some of them were Sikh. Uh, but the Canadian media reports, you know, they mingle all this. These kind of differences weren't well understood. And basically, it's an anti-immigration, anti, uh, you know, uh, minority sort of xenophobic reaction, shall we say. And it's interesting, I think, because Kingsley is always pegged as somebody that is marginalizing identities, that he's not sensitive to identities, right? That his Marxism is dogmatic, it's not nuanced. How much can we learn on this when we live in a world of intersectionality? But we're saying, well, wait a minute, if you go look at this, you'll see that, you know, uh, Kingsley completely sides, unlike others, that more moderate socialists that took a more bigoted position. And, you know, but in both countries, you see anti-Asian sentiment is very widespread. And, you know, there's entire books written about anti-Asian labor movements in California. The same thing is true in British Columbia. There's campaigns. uh, And I think they're successful uh, in both countries. I believe I'd have to go look at California, but I believe there's successful efforts to remove them from the franchise, denying Asian labor is the right to vote. Uh, I think that's pretty clear and, and there's social exclusion, but Kinsley speaks up in does he do a modern identity politics approach? No, but he defends them as workers and says, you know, basically the, you know, these people are, are together fighting the masters, you know, uh, and, uh, he, uh, you know, uh, sides completely, uh, with, uh, the workers on that. And, uh, So I think that in that, uh, you know, he uh, really does take a principled uh, position. And, uh, you know, it's uh, something that, uh, you know, I think speaks to the fact, the force of his principled arguments.
1: Yeah, I'll pick up something you just uh, said that um, he Kingsley is often accused of having a very reductive uh, kind of class politics. Um, and in the last century, we've had a lot of, you know, extra views kind of brought in questions of gender, race, sexuality, etc. Um, and it's also kind of ironic given that Kingsley was himself disabled. Um, and then you could add throughout the United States and Canada, there's the question of indigenous rights, um, from which, uh, British Columbia is not immune from that kind of questionable history. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to, uh, you know, this, uh, very kind of, uh, focused, uh, vision of class, um, as opposed to kind of the more, uh, interdisciplinary approach that, you know, a lot of leftists have tried to pick up and, um, you know you kind of wrestle with whether or not this counts as like a vulgar marxism or if there's maybe something we can learn from it um
0: you know could you speak to that oh so the intention of the books that we've written is not to argue against an intersectional approach it's simply that kingsley is fascinating in the approach that he takes and that, that it's more nuanced in how he articulates and honestly we as we talked in the earlier interview we were interested in how his disablement affected his political activism. It's not intended to apologize uh, for his vision. On some questions, you really cannot defend Kinsley, you know, on things like women's suffrage. And, you know, his vision is not something that's always sensitive. But what I would say is that the uncompromising nature in an era of globalization, and I don't want to be melodramatic, but, you know, many commentators often would say, I'm, I'm someone... I just recently finished reading all three volumes of Capital, the magnum opus of Karl Marx. Uh, and so some people would say, and I would concur with them, that if you take a look, particularly volume three of Capital, the trends of globalization that are discussed or the, the spreading, he doesn't, Marx doesn't use the word globalization, but you know the concepts of Capital, the volume three of Capital is actually more salient in 2023. The book is weird, but it was weirder In the in the eighteen sixties than it is today. It's difficult to read, it's complicated, and you can say the same thing about Kingsley, that is his actually uncompromising vision is more relevant today because in 2023 you have whatever term you want to use. You want to use the term proletariat, or you just want to say workers, the jargon doesn't matter. But corporate power is probably more concentrated, more solidified than it was at the time Kingsley was injured in 1890, than it is in 2023. So in that sense, I think that the relevance is there. That doesn't mean you. T- nobody here, uh, Ben and I are not advocating you take the ideas wholesale and apply them in modern conditions. But as someone, I think, that has a vision uh, in that sense, I think his views are more salient than ever more relevant today than they were uh, in the
1: 1890s. Yeah, I I guess I'll ask um, then, what do you think Kingsley has to offer in terms of like maybe kind of shifting our focus back towards class power and class struggle? Um, You know, you're kind of uh, arguing still for like... um, Marxism or a leftism that incorporates these various forms of identity, but then Kingsley maybe kind of can offer kind of a corrective to an overemphasis on those forms of identity at the expense of a class struggle politics. Um, You know, do you do you see him kind of offering that kind of reminder of what can what can be
0: uh,
1: done there?
0: Well, you know, as I I think it's simply the example. It it is my. Role and Ben's role is not to articulate a particular vision. What we wanted to do is bring the ideas forth, you know. And uh, you know, it's not necessarily to advocate personally. Can't speak for Ben. You know, I think there's there's a place for reformism as well in making. You know, I think it's a strategic kind of decision in the modern world. the The intent was not to present ideas that are directly applicable. I think it's more the example that this is a figure that presented. Readers will have to judge, you know, in the modern world, how exactly it would apply and Frankly, I don't think it's one thing or the other. In some cases, a focus on class politics is more so In one situation. In others, there may well be a, a, a place for campaigns of reform. But also, I would suggest that if you look at the practice of the organization Kingsley led, despite the rhetoric I think that at the time that that's actually what they did in practice in building an organization, uh, uh, you know, you always have to deal with the real world. And there were examples of flexibility in order uh, to stay them. And there were continuous debates within the organization of people that wanted to engage more with unions, not just dismiss them as reformist SOPs, Uh, you know, Kingsley definitely was on the more orthodox side of it, but the people he worked with had a range of positions, and so I can't say that one or the other is best. It's going to depend on the context, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying there's kind of a way we need to learn to like maintain flexibility in practice while maintaining principle, uh, kind of a, having a principled backbone that kind of holds us together. Well,
0: that's one way of looking at it. You know, it's a. I I don't think that you can have a historical text that answers all your questions. Kingsley doesn't write about the ecological crisis because it's an issue that comes after his time, right? So he writes about the issues that were facing workers in his time, and the the political period he's active in is from 1890 uh, until, like, by the early 20s, he's really winding down. So we never, you know, he says some things about Lenin and Trotsky, uh, you know, and he, he praises them, but he doesn't he never formally joins the official communist party and unlike many of his younger comrades and he uh, but he doesn't explicitly join social democratic formations either uh, despite a membership of the federated labor party formally joins but all the evidence we see suggests he still retained radical positions up to the end of his life it seems like you know and so there's a do- but that's simply the fact that uh, People, when they examine the work of somebody like Trotsky, for example, one of, the, one of the things that happens is people die at the wrong time, right? And so, you know, what does Trotsky think about World War II? We don't know, because he, he is assassinated. And so, you know, the same sort of thing, what would Kingsley have thought of the Second World War and the Great Depression? We don't know, because by 1929, he's dead. And so, as the debates in the Soviet Union pick up, Kingsley is not part of that, and we, we can only speculate but if he's really a man of an earlier time. And he's, in many ways, despite his ratings coming from the 20th century, what I would argue is that because he was so old, uh, in many ways, he's a man of the 19th century that lived on. His formative experience, his disablement, is in 1890. His He cuts his political teeth in California in the 1890s. And so he's, to, to a large extent, I don't know to what extent he's, Constantly adapting. People often get fixed in their positions. So I think as he got older, he remained a man of the 19th century. But nonetheless, I think his his writings and speeches provide important insights to understand labor history and lessons, broadly speaking, for today.
1: Yeah, you mentioned um, Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolshevik Revolution. So when that happened, that obviously sent shockwaves throughout the entire world, especially leftists and labor organizers. And Kingsley himself wrote a few pieces on that and spoke on it. Um, Could you maybe speak to uh, how the Bolshevik Revolution was received not just by Kingsley but by his peers. How was this event kind of being understood and assimilated into uh, labor's understanding of what it could do, what it was, what was possible, what it might try and aim for?
0: Okay, so that's a lot to unpack, but you know we do have some extracts where Kingsley talks about this, and uh, you know uh, one of the things you need to know about Kingsley is that before these events happened, one of his favorite speeches, and this is forgotten uh, today, is the Commune of Paris. No historians that follow this will know this, but your general audience may not know that not just Kingsley, but for radicals of that era, the example of working-class power that everyone talked about was the Paris Commune, or the Commune of Paris, the, the control in the 19th century. Some people even speculate that because German troops were used to suppress, or at least some people being Ben and I, I think, you know, I think would agree with this, that there's some speculation uh, on our part that Kingsley took his position on World War One because of his uh, close weeding of German troops suppressing the commune of Paris, that he retained an anti-German bias throughout his life. That's speculative, and I don't know how much we've even worried about that in Able to Lead, but that's the first thing you need to understand, that this was a comparison that was drawn and the fragmentary ratings we have that we reproduce from class warrior are defending, uh, you know, Lenin and Trotsky. So we have a piece that he wrote, uh, you know, and talks about uh, the suppression of the Bolsheviks and for uh, the attempts, the attempts by Western elites, you know, at this time, how his colleagues, comrades uh, reacted is depends. It's It's very different. So at that point, essentially... First of all, Kingsley had already left the organization about three to four years earlier. You know, he leaves, doesn't have much to do with the Socialist Party after 1914. But the party splits over this question, like in many countries in the world. So one group, uh, I think a very large group, forms the Communist Party of Canada, which Kingsley never joins and takes on a full defense of the Soviet Union. But that takes time. It takes a few years. And like in many countries, I don't, there's not that many members at the beginning. You know, and I'm not an expert in all the nuances, but you know, it takes time, I think, to get going. Others took a more moderate approach. And one of the ambiguities is we don't have, and I think partly because of Kingsley's age, a concrete understanding of exactly the position he took. But the writings we do have suggest that it was a pro-working class defense. And I think that you have to bear in mind the reality of his age and disablement. So at this point, he's well into his 60s. Uh, By the time we get up to the 1920s, right? And he, uh, you know, in fact, I think he turned 70, right? In uh, uh, 1926. So, you know, he's also a double amputee. I think it's fair to say that he had a fair number of medical issues and barriers. It's not an unreasonable thing to say. So I think he simply becomes less politically engaged. But The core message, everything that we believe is that that leads us to believe that he continued his class politics, uh, which was support for the working class. But uh, we don't have, he didn't write a detailed book on this at that stage of his life.
1: Yeah, to backtrack a couple years, another thing that has come up is the First World War. Um, And Kingsley spoke often on that, but he tried to, again, impart like a very aggressively class perspective, kind of talking about um, the kind of conscription of the working classes for the sake of empire. Um, Could you maybe speak a bit more to this particular view and how it was kind of, it functioned as a critique of the often kind of romanticized view of the war that a lot of uh, young men were kind of uh, inculcated into.
0: Oh, uh, so you want me to speak to critiques of war? Is that the question?
1: Well, yeah, but I, I mean, I more specifically, um, from what I've read on World War One, it was kind of viewed by a lot of young men who were conscripted in kind of these romantic nationalist terms, um, whereas Kingsley had a very, a much more grim uh, and materialistic view of what war actually is in terms of, you know, how it Uses and abuses the working class for the sake of, you know, just keeping the system going. Could you speak to that?
0: Oh, sure. So the the thing about this is, it's fascinating. The what you're articulating is absolutely right in the broad sense. Kingsley does have this pro-worker view. He'll talk about wage slaves. Constant. He constantly berates workers for not having enough class consciousness. He berates them for not being radical enough. He sort of he has this approach. And again, is it humor? It's unclear, but. You know, some of it is very much condemning workers for not being radical enough, condemning their masters uh, for their oppression and tyranny. But at the same time, as I said, Kingsley takes this position where he's actually so anti-German uh, and, and uh, you know, he leaves the Socialist Party, Canada, that he's supportive of this, uh, of the war. And so there is a piece uh, that we found, uh, you know... Uh, I believe it's extracted here, but it's actually, uh, you know, uh, in in the end of the book, we we extract some longer pieces that address the nature of the war. And despite this formal position, uh, he uh, does defend radical positions and wants the state to take responsibility for uh, rehabilitation of the economy and rehabilitation of injured workers, but there's another factor, Stephen, that you have to you have to take into account, which is it's a little unclear to us to what extent uh, that Kingsley self-censored, because he has one piece uh, which, interestingly enough, is monitored by the state, because I think it's commented on that's uh, entitled uh, Win the War. Okay, that sounds very patriotic. The headline says Win the War, but when you read the piece, it's actually saying all kinds of radical things, heavily critical of the government's handling. So I think during the war, there was a little bit of self-censorship where he was saying things in a suited way to get around it, because the headline doesn't actually match the content. And, uh, but the the censors, uh, and one of the censors was named uh, Colonel Chambers, the military censors were not fooled by this. They were closely monitoring uh, people, including Kingsley, uh, during the war. And... uh, I think they were aware that they would phrase things in silly ways, but they didn't brook dissent, you know. And they were, uh, you know, th- they were concerned about this. And uh, without getting into too much of an aside, one of the big problems is that Kingsley wrote in English, uh, and many radicals at that time, many radical Marxists, were writing news. They were publishing in Canada, and I think also in the U.S. in German. Certainly, it's well known the latest. Had. One of one of the jokes about the Landist organization is that one of the reasons they didn't grow is that they didn't have enough workers that could speak English to communicate with American native-born American workers. And nobody but they all spoke German. How are you going to actually recruit anybody uh, in Canada? You had a bunch of Finnish radicals. They're publishing radical socialist newspapers in Finnish, uh, which is causing trouble in the Finnish community. But nobody reads Finnish, right? So I mean, the the security state was less concerned about that radical anti-war messages in German and Finnish because they could go and round up ethnic radicals. They knew where they were. It wasn't that dangerous. But somebody like Kingsley is, is giving speeches and writing in English. That's a big problem for the state. And so you can see why they continued to have a file on him uh, and they were concerned uh, about this message that I think in substance, despite some ambiguities, was consistently critical, despite whatever formalities they would say about the war, it was critical, and also critical of how returning soldiers were treated. Uh, Is that connected to the fact of his own disability? We don't have the evidence, but these are often men that came back as amputees. He himself was an amputee, so you can see that, and from what I understand, the party was successful. Now, he had left at this point, but you had at meetings veterans that had been radicalized, and the government Uh, And I think this is true in both countries. Uh, And this is also true, by the way, for your listeners. I think it's also true for modern wars, for those people that – listeners that are familiar with the Vietnam War. The governments of the day really, really dislike radicalized veterans because they they see them as particularly threatening uh, because those are people that are injured for their country. You cannot say they're unpatriotic because they're veterans, and they're coming back and saying they're radical. And not to believe the government, that the government's lying about what's happening on the front lines. That's a powerful message. So I think you've got – but in the last part of our book, uh, Class Warrior, we do reproduce some documents around that, which I hope will be useful for your listeners.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So to kind of tie this uh, conversation together, so one thing I appreciate about everything you've been saying and everything you say in the introduction is that often when uh, engaging with Kingsley, you're kind of wrestling with certain things you're maybe ambivalent about or um, trying to kind of see what can be salvaged, what sort of limitations he might have because of his time and place. Um, Beyond just completing our historical record. what do you hope people, particularly on the left who come to your work and start to rediscover Kingsley in his world? Are there any things you hope they uh, maybe are able to learn or just forced to productively wrestle with uh, in terms of like perspectives on class, race, um, you know politics, capitalism, etc like, what, what I like about your animation, reanimation of Kingsley is that you're kind of more trying to get us to wrestle with the questions he wrestled with, not simply say he is the one who we actually need to bring back to solve everything. Could you speak to kind of how you hope people engage with this work?
0: I think it's the, the core message is that it the uncompromising vision. And so I want to be clear. I mean, I, I think, you know, neither Ben nor I, I think I feel comfortable saying that, you know, endorse Kingsley's specific ideas as a course for action today. You know, those sorts of issues need to be discussed in the contemporary conjunction with activists for today that will build on their own experiences. It's more the idea that he's so uncompromising at a general level, that he was so eloquent, and that it's, it's a life lost. In the earlier book, we're interested in his disabled, and he was a disabled man that, you know, was able to speak out. That is also interesting. It's less present in Class Warrior, And the fact that he was such a gifted writer, such a gifted orator. And uh, some people are good at speaking, some are good at writing. Relatively few people are both great orators and great writers. And he was both, quite clearly. And so I think it is not the specific ideas as a guide for action. That's not really the purpose of the book. But it's more that that he uh, had these ideas, and these ideas... In the course of labor history, I think have been a lost. He's a lost figure, uh, and you know I don't want to uh, exaggerate the importance in any way. But I'll, I think I said this in my earlier interview. Maybe it's a nice way to leave off. It's a, the lost nature is important to me. I think that the idea that you you have a figure and you bring back their life. My friend who just died recently, Jeffrey B. Perry, wrote a two-volume biography. Of Hubert Harrison. And when I first started this project, uh, Hubert Harrison was an African American thinker. He lived roughly around the same time as Kingsley. He was an African American, came from the Caribbean. He was completely lost. Uh, you know, in many ways, he's different from Kingsley, but he was also a radical. He was in the Socialist Party, completely lost from history. In some ways, you know, here I'm speaking for myself, I was inspired by Jeffrey Perry's uh, books on Harrison in that he brought someone back and he was able to show this. And so I I hope, if anything, that readers are left with is sort of the uh, fact that we're bringing to life a voice uh, who had basically been erased. Uh, Remember, he'd been forgotten, he'd been lost in memory, and he'd been estranged from his family. So I don't think there was anyone to promote him later. So for all those reasons, Kigsley, I think, deserves to be remembered.
1: Yeah, that's a good note to end on. So as a final question, I always like to ask uh, guess what, if anything, are you working on now? Are you and Ben continuing to collaborate on anything, any more Kingsley work, or are you kind of moving on to new projects?
0: I'll answer that in two parts. So well, there is one last thing, one final thing we're working on, which is getting Kingsley's capsule biography in, in a book called The Dictionary of Canadian Biography. So in the arcane world of Canadian historians, getting a public figure into that is sort of an accomplishment because then that person will be remembered. And I think uh, it's, it's a big deal in historical circles to get a historical figure into the dictionary of Canadian biography. It requires a certain level of geekiness to understand that. But, you know, in, in the historical world, that's important. Uh, in terms of my own work, uh, right now, I'm very slowly working on a book on the radical philosopher Pernelius Castoriadis and his uh, uh, work on, I'm applying his theories to the philosophy of time and uh, applying that to the situation of workers with disabilities. And so I've got a government grant to interview workers with disabilities uh, and it looks at what, we, what disability scholars call crip time. And so I've got a book project uh, and a book contract uh, you know, with Bloomsbury. And so someday soon, I hope to have uh, the opportunity when it's written to promote another book. So, uh, but that's what, that's what I'm working on, Stephen.
1: Yeah, that sounds really interesting and a great kind of jumping off point from what you've been doing. So we'll look forward to that. Um, in the meantime, Ravi Mahatra, thank you so much for coming back.
0: Thank you for having me.